it's, you know, recently anything that's political, I just disregarded. You know, go vote, vote your biblical values. I don't have to tell you that. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, we're talking about every week. Everything you do should be based on biblical values, not just your vote. So that's just part of it. So that's the deal. But the issue is, is that sometimes we get these. And so I got one not long ago. I mean, it was, it was probably several months ago. But um, it was somebody that sat on there, and it's one of these little videos. And I don't know if it was a, ho- I guess it was a homemade video. And it was basically of this birthday party. And this kid who's like, this little boy who's like 10 or 12 years old, maybe you've seen it or not, um, he was out there, and, and what it was, he was having this birthday party, and you're kind of like seeing, and they were at the table, they were going to open the presents, and you can see the anticipation in the little boy's face. You know how little kids, <gasps> you know, and, and not knowing exactly what he wanted or anything, but he was anticipating something, something exciting, you know. And so, finally comes time to open the presents, and it shows the little boy, you know, the full view of him, and he starts ripping this box. And the book's, box is about like this big, and kind of big, and... and um, he rips it open, and when he rips it open, he has this sunken look on his face, like, oh, my gosh. And it's sit on the outside of the box, have fun with pottery. Now, I don't know if any 12-year-old boys really want, that are cool, really want a have fun with pottery thing. It was like a pottery wheel thing. It's what it's the picture on the box that showed it on the video. And this kid looked at it, and his first reaction was, you know, he just takes off running. He doesn't open the box. He just kind of like is just heartbroken by whatever he was, he didn't know what he was anticipating, okay? I say that to talk about this. Have you ever had anticipation in your life about your life being a certain way and it didn't end up that way and it ends up with disappointment in some areas? The story that we're reading today, the story that you just heard about, is a story that could be seen, a story of all kinds of things, anticipation, joy, disillusionment, disappointment, anger, bitterness. And the story takes place during the period of the judges that we talked about last week, which was a 400-year period, kind of a dark period in the life of Israel. And as was happening, it's kind of weird because when you read this book, the book of Ruth, if you read chapter 9 this week of the story, you will understand that it's about this book of Ruth, and it kind of seems to be, it appears to be a story of a random family. He'd never had heard of them before. A husband whose name is Elimelech. I can only remember that because it was like that silly song used to go, Elimelech, Elimelech. No, it's not, that wasn't a song. But uh, it kind of rhymes with that, you know. Elimelech and, and, and his wife named Naomi, and you already understand her name means pleasant or sweet. That's what her name meant. And it was not long in the story, if you read the story, that they had a couple of sons. Things are going along pretty well. I mean, it was like the family they always wanted, you know, wife, husband, decent job, you know, garage. No, I don't think they had a garage. But, you know, they had, you know, they had a house. They had everything they wanted. But then something terrible happens. They, there are famine strikes. And in four, actually, only a few verses, it goes from this thing that they anticipated being a happy life, things going well, to disaster because famine strikes and they have to move from their homeland and they moved, they're forced to move to the land of Moab. Now Moab was a place back in the, in the Old Testament, if you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, Moab is the place where the descendants of Sodom lived. Okay? It was a place where um, it was tough for Israelites to move there. It wasn't like you're, you know, yeah, I want to move to 
to, to this place called Moab. But they did anyway. It would be kind of like today, you know, if, if you were, just a modern-day analogy, if uh, wives, if you, you know, had a, you got married, you had a couple of kids, things were going along well, and there's a recession, which never happens in our world today. And, and you know, and, then, and it's so bad that you go months and months and months and months and months without jobs. I heard this went on in the early 80s at CAT, right? Those of you are old CAT people. And uh, I don't know how it happened here, but a lot of places, I remember back in the, in the 70s, General Electric, where my dad worked and went through a, a, a just horrible place, a time where they had to lay off people and people couldn't get jobs and they had to move. And I know many people that moved, and if you had to move to another place and you said you didn't have a lot of family connections and you moved to someplace else where there's nobody there that you know, like Germantown Hills or something like, no, that's my story. Um, I know a lot of you guys now, though, after 10 years. But the issue is you go to a different place and you're there. And, and, then, and then the ladies, you know, it's all right because, you, you know, you, you'll be able to make a living and, and, and things are going pretty well. But then the horrible part of the story is the husband got sick. He gets sick. And it's not too long before he dies. And all during this time, I don't know exactly the the time frame of it, but the two sons are growing up and, you know, things are bad enough. The husband's died, the two sons grow up, and they kind of support and helping things go along pretty well. And then the the worst thing that possibly can happen, the only two kids you have, the two sons, they, they get ill and die as well. But before they die, right before they die or sometime along the way, they get married, and they get married to two Moabite women. And these two Moabite women... Uh, what they do, their names are Opa. I want to keep want to say Oprah, but it's not Oprah. It's Orpa. Excuse me, Orpa. This is really tough. The Old Testament has some really great names, uh, which I can't pronounce. Uh, Ruth. I like Ruth. I can figure that one out. Ruth and Orpa. And, and Ruth and Orpa are these two Moabite women that the sons marry, but the two sons die, leaving three widows. Now this is bad enough in our culture today, but in that culture it was disaster. Because in that culture, women did not have the rights to own land and all the kind of things, and really just kind of like survived off the people's goodwill, just doing the best they could. And so they go through this process of doing that, and, and they go through this period of grief. Now, grief is something that all of us have experienced probably in some way, some small way, some big ways. But grief is hard to define sometimes. Edgar um, Jackson wrote a book. He was a guy who wrote a book several years ago called The Many Faces of Grief. And he defines grief like this. He says, grief is the silent knife-like terror and sadness that comes a hundred times a day when you start to speak to someone who is no longer there. Grief is the emptiness that comes when you eat alone after eating with another for many years. Grief is teaching yourself to go to bed without saying goodnight to the one who has died. Grief is the helpless wishing that things were different when you know that they are not and they never will be again. I mean, I thought those were good descriptions of grief. Grief is a horrible place to be. It can be a place that just absorbs and consumes our lives so often. And so in the midst of this grief of this mom who has lost her husband and her two sons, and now along with that, the two sons' wives who have lost their husbands as well, we see these three ladies together, and Naomi, the mom, tells her daughters-in-laws to return to their homes because she feels like there is no hope for me, and all I'm going to do is drag you guys down. So go back and try to find, try to do something else. You, you are young, you might be able to get re, remarried, but I'm too old, I can't possibly do this. And so that's what, uh, what she tells them to do. And Orpah agrees to do this, but Ruth refuses to leave Naomi. And in Ruth, cha- uh, Ruth chapter 1, the book of Ruth, chapter 1, 
verses 16 through 18, we read these words. But Ruth replied after Naomi tells her to leave, she says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, have you heard that before somewhere, those words? Where have you heard those? At weddings. Those so often are verses that have been read at weddings between a bride and a groom. But you know that? They're taken totally out of context. If we want to place them in context, you know what would happen? At a wedding, if we actually used those verses and used them in context, the bride would turn to the mother-in-law and say that. That would be weird, wouldn't it? It would be really weird. But that's just the context. So now you know where that comes from. It comes from an Old Testament where Ruth spoke that to Naomi. And so we see these words. And so after she says that, though in verse 18, Naomi says this. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. She finally gave up. Ruth must have been really persistent. She says, I am not going. I am not leaving you. And so they returned to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem. Bethlehem, have we heard of that one before? Yeah, what a, you know, the story's starting to make a little bit of sense. Bethlehem, that's something important happened there. And the thing is, is that Naomi could, would, would have never predicted that her foreign daughter-in-law would be the one to stick with her during all the stuff that was going on her, with her. But God uses this unlikely friendship to bring about some change in Naomi's story. But when they get to Bethlehem, if you've already heard this already in a sense, but I just want to repeat to remind you of what you heard. In a sense, what happened was Naomi get there, she's bitter, she's, she's angry. She, she doesn't feel like God is with her in any way. And so what she does is she, she says this in, in uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 20. She says, don't, and the people there recognize her, many of them, because Bethlehem at that time was a city of like 200 people. That's all it was. In a city of 200 people, do you know each other? Yeah. When Great Oaks was 200, I knew most of the people. You know, now that we're like two and a half, three times bigger than that, there's no way I can know all you guys. I might not recognize your face. You go out the door, you're going like, I'm going like, don't feel offended. I'm trying my best. You only have to learn one name, Bill. Uh, Thank you. You got it. Okay. But, uh. But the issue is, is that you, you can know, so people, even though it's been a long time, the people kind of recognized her, and somebody looked at her and says, Naomi, and then she says this, don't call me Naomi, she told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, she went away, you know, everything was going right, everything was, anticipation was right, I mean, husband, kids, everything. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so when we read this, what we really quickly understand is this could be, if you just stopped right there and didn't go any further, this could really be easily be called a story about loss or grief. But as we read further, that's not how it plays out. And that's the important part of the story. Because grief and loss happen in all, happens in all of our lives. I have a book uh, actually on my iPad that I, I downloaded a while back by a guy named Gerald Sitzer. He's professor at Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington. And he wrote a book, and it was an interesting book because it's called this, A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. And in that book, he says this, the experience of loss does not have to be the defining moment of our lives. Instead, the defining moment can be our response to the loss. 
It is not what happens to us that matters so much as what happens in us through the loss. Now, we read that and we're going like, oh, yeah, what does he know about loss? I mean, this is a, a professor at a college, at a Christian college. There, what does he know? Well, Gerald Sitzer, the reason he wrote this book, he wrote about it out of his own experiences. Because a number of years ago, as he was driving down the road in a, in a van with his wife and kids and his mother, a drunk driver hit them. He did not have anything wrong with him, hardly any injuries whatsoever, but his mom, his wife, and his youngest daughter were all killed. He knows about loss. He understands it firsthand. But he said this, he says, once again, let me read what he says, the experience of loss does not have to be the defining moment of our lives. So often in life what we do is we allow loss to define everything else that happens after the loss. And because of that, our life is lived in this box, this, this place where it's, it's, it's not really a very good place. But he says instead, the defining moment can be our response to the loss. How do we deal with the loss? So Naomi and Ruth return to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem. And as they're there, they go out into the field because they're, they're basically just trying to survive. They're just hoping to survive. That's all they're caring about at this point. They're not looking for anything exciting happening in their life. They just want to eat. And as they go there, they go there because they know some people. Some family members of, of Naomi are there. Ruth doesn't know anybody. She's from Moab. And in chapter 2, verse 2, it says this, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Basically, she's going out and going like, Well, let me go out in the fields and the stuff that's left over after they harvest, you know, whatever little's out there, I will see if they'll let me pick up the leftovers. And we'll live off of that. That's her hope. And so Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to a guy named Boaz. Now, we read further in the story, and we understand uh, the situation that um, Boaz is a distant relative of Naomi. And Naomi, as she has returned to Bethlehem empty, she thinks that God has abandoned her. But if you begin to pull back from the story, from the lower story, look at the upper story of what God is really doing in this, if, if Naomi could just wipe away the tears long enough, she would see that God is at work in the midst of all these things, of what seems to be everything but good. That God is at work redeeming the story. Now, the word redeem is not something we use very often in our culture, do we? I remember years ago when I was a kid, we talked about, you know, remember, now this is just says something about my age, okay? And it'll say something about your age if you know what I'm talking about, okay? Years ago, do y'all remember green stamps? None of you know what green stamps are. Yeah, some of y'all, everybody over like 45 plus might have a clue what I'm talking about. There used to be these things, I don't know how you got, how did you get green stamps? I can't remember how you got them. But some way you got these stamps, you put them in a book, and then we'd call, you go and redeem the green stamps. You take these things that are not worth anything hardly at all, and you go to the store, and you'd actually get stuff for filling up a book with a bunch of stamps in it. I don't know how it worked, you know? But I remember my parents doing that, redeeming the green That's the only time I've ever remembered that. I was trying to rack my brain and think, where in the world have I used the word redeem outside of a church? But the issue, the word redeem, uh, means to... To, uh, to pay a ransom or to make up for or to make amends for. The theological definition is to deliver from sin and its consequences by means of a sacrifice 
offered for the sinner. So what God is doing in this story, the story of Ruth and Naomi, is the story of what he's doing is he's taking the losses that are there and he uses three different things to redeem the loss, to, to change it around to something good, to take almost nothing and turn it into something good. First of all, he, God redeems the story of loss with an unlikely friendship. You know, I mean, Ruth didn't have to hang around with Naomi. Matter of fact, it could have been a death sentence for her. Because she had no, she was going back to Naomi's homeland. She would be the foreigner there. And guess what would happen? There was no, there was no uh, guarantee that she could even survive. And then what do you do? I mean, it's like you and I just going to a place we've never been before and just saying, I'm going to hang out here hoping and don't have a job, don't have anything, no resources. They didn't take anything with them either because they didn't have anything and hoping to survive. But, but there's no reason that Ruth had to follow along and do this, but she did anyway. There's this unlikely friendship. See, God has a way of doing this when we go through a loss. When we go through a loss, God brings along people who give us strength to get through things. And I found that that person is not always the person that we think, always the person we think it should be. Who would have guessed that her daughter-in-law from Moab would be the one who had this close relationship that would hang out with her and stay with her? So in the midst of her grief, she has this friendship. And that helps reading the story because so often that's what God does. Because isn't it true in our lives, let's just be honest with ourselves, that so often when we go through loss, do we pull people to ourselves or do we push people away? 98% of the time, people who go through loss push people away. For some reason, we think, I guess it's American individualism. I don't know what the deal is. But what we do is we think that we don't need anybody else. We, we know we do. But so often what we do is we push people away. That's what we do through grief and loss. We have the tendency to push people away instead of pull them to us. Uh, you know, and really what we do is we need somebody in our life who will help us along the way through grief and loss. It's kind of like a few years ago when I first came here to Illinois. Now, I used to say Illinois, so I didn't know. See, I, now I live here now, so I know how to pronounce it correctly. Um, but uh, Illinois, uh, that's how you know if somebody's not from Illinois, they say Illinois. You know that? Yeah, okay. Uh, just want to make sure. Um, but the thing is, is uh, I, I was getting ready to fly out of Roanoke, Virginia. That's where I used to live, Salem, Virginia, Roanoke, Virginia. This is an airport. It's in a, Roanoke is, is a city about the size of Peoria. It has a small airport. And as you fly out of Roanoke, anybody ever been to Roanoke besides me? Oh, four of you, okay. Great, okay. Uh, if you ever flown into Roanoke, it's, it's a little terrifying airport because the thing is, is you're flying over the Allegheny Mountains on one side and the Blue Ridge Mountain on the other, and you come over these fairly significant mountains, not as big as Colorado. I know Coloradans or Coloradans or whatever you are. But the issue is they're big mountains. Okay, you fly over these mountains, you've got to go down in the valley, and it's a pretty steep descent, and then you land. And I talked to a couple of pilots that I knew uh, back then that lived in Roanoke, and they said they hated flying in and out of Roanoke. Because you had to ascend and descend so quickly. I mean, as soon as you get up at Adirondack, it's like taking off with a fighter jet. You just, you know, just take right up. You know, so it's really fun. Well, I was on a plane and I was getting ready to fly back here from something I'd done, maybe moving or something. I can't remember what it was exactly. But there was this lady sitting next to me. You know, this was ten years ago. And I'm a little younger 10 years ago than I am today. But the issue was, was this lady was a few years younger than me, and she sat down next to me, and it's one of those little commuter jets. You know how those things are, those little uh, uh, regional jets and stuff. And, and I sit, she sits down next to me, and she's all chatty. 
Don't you love people on planes that you just don't know? They just, just want, don't want, you, you would like to, you know, do this, and all they want to do is, you know, and this lady was excited. And I found out after five minutes, I mean, she told me her life history, everything about everything in the world, you know, and it's a little, shared a little too much, but, but she looked at me, she goes, she goes, this is my first plane ride ever. And I'm going, you're flying out of Roanoke. And so we take off, and, you know, and at first, she's, you know, she's not too terrified. She's gripping the, the arms, and she's excited. She's still smiling and gripping the arms, the armrest on the seat, you know. And we take off, and we get up, and we go over the mountains. And as, as we go over the mountains a little bit, then we, we encounter some pockets of turbulence. And we're bouncing around a little bit, you know. It's not, it's not really bad. It's kind of semi-bad, you know. And you know what I mean by that, those of you who fly. And it was you know, I wasn't nervous about it. It was not exactly something I liked, but it was not bad. Well, this lady, she, she, when I'm sitting there, and I have, I have my arms kind of like this, you know, and the planes are like, you know, like this. And I'm having my arms there, and all of a sudden, she grabs my wrist when we're going over the mountains, and she, she has this death grip on my arm. She does. I mean, literally, she's squeezing. I was going to have to see if, you know, get some vice grips or something, get it off. And she was, she was just gripping my arm so hard, and I was going like, what in the world's wrong with her? This chatty lady who's all happy five minutes before, and she looks at me, and she goes, is this normal? And then she says, is it going to be okay? And I look at her, you know, you know like five whole flights in my life under my belt, you know, experienced flyer. And she, I said, this is totally normal. It happens all the time. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. And she calmed right down. If she knew more about who I was and how little experience I had, she would have probably been terrified at that point. But the issue was, the issue was that she, she, that was enough for her. See, when we're going through a loss, we go through a ter- time of terror in our life, we need someone to answer the question, is it going to be okay? That's why we can't push away from people. That's why we have to let people come into our lives. I think it's one of the huge benefits, and understand me here, one of the huge benefits of being a part of the body of believers called the church. Because there's, we will go through loss and pain in our lives. If you live very long at all, you will go through loss and pain. It may be loss of job, loss of health, loss of uh, somebody in your home, whatever it may be. You're going to lose something. And during that time, it is, you need somebody you can grab a hold of their arm and say, is it going to be all right? And it's best that that someone has been there. And in the body of believers, one of the things I constantly do is when somebody is going through pain or loss in their life, guess what I try to do as a pastor? I try to connect them with people who've been there, done that. And they come out the other side whole. Because God has redeemed the loss. In their life. So the first thing that God does here is he redeems the story of loss with an unlikely friendship with Naomi and Ruth and something that's there. But also God redeems the story of loss with an undeserved kindness of Boaz. You know, if you've read chapter 3 and 4 of the story, and if you've not of chapter 9 of the story, um, of, excuse me, chapter 3 and 4 of Ruth in chapter 9 of the story, you get it right here, um, you will have read some stuff you're going like, what does that mean? What's all this kinsman redeemer stuff? What's all this stuff about, you know, uh, buying the land and then inheriting the wife? Because that's what it says. If you haven't read it, I just tell you that. It's a really cool story. Read it. 
You know, it's, it really makes, it, it's crazy. But it was culturally this. Basically, there was a person called a kinsman redeemer. And what happened is if somebody died, Naomi's husband died, they had a piece of land. And the land on the promised land had been divided out to all the tribes and all the families. And everybody had their own little piece of land. That was kind of like their piece of the promised land. And it was passed down from generation to generation. And when something happened, that the person who was the, the, the guy who was the, the, the person who was the owner of the land, if he died and didn't have a child who could inherit the land, then what they would do is that somebody who was the nearest, closest relative was supposed to, in that culture, what their thing was to do is they were supposed to buy the land, in, which means they inherit, in a sense, the wife, because I'm sorry, ladies, in that day you were property, you know, and then they were supposed to, if physically possible, have a child with that lady. And that child, who was uh, partially descended of the original owner, became the owner of the land when they grew up. And so it passed from generation to generation. Kind of a convoluted way of doing things, but that's just the way it was in Scripture. And so we see this guy named Boaz who becomes this friend. Now, we don't know all the... why. Why, why he did everything. You know, we want to think, oh, well, you know, Ruth was this really hot-looking babe, and she was out in the fields. And so, I mean, that's what some people have told me before, you know, caught, said it caught his eye, you know, I don't know, you know. Like, I don't know how you catch anybody's eye when you're wearing all that stuff, you know, these, like, layers and layers and layers of clothing and stuff. It's not like today, you know. <clears throat> you know what I'm saying, you know. Um... But the issue is that she did. And so the issue is, though, is Boaz wasn't the closest relative. He wasn't the guy in line. But he went out of his way to make sure things were made right with Naomi and with Ruth. And so he goes through this process, and, and he goes, and if you read chapter 3 and 4, he goes through the process of finding the guy who was the closest one in line. He takes him to him, goes through all the legal ramifications of it. It's kind of crazy. And then he says, well, I can't do this. And so he says, well, I'll do it. And so eventually Boaz marries Ruth. He has this undeserved kindness. And, and because of that as well, see, he, was, he took over the land and, and, and took care. I mean, he was taking care of Naomi and Ruth. It was an undeserved kindness. He didn't have to do it. I mean, Ruth was a foreign woman, and in that culture, that was not a cool thing to do, was to marry somebody who was not from your culture, not from your religious group or from your culture group. It was a lot of things wrong there with that, and so he did it anyway. And you ask the question, I ask the question, why did he do this? Why was he this kind of a person? Well, you know, if you've been reading this story, you know who uh, Moab, uh, excuse me, uh, Boaz's wife was? Wife, no, excuse me. Get, get ahead of myself here. Who Boaz's mom was. You know who Boaz's, remember this person named Rahab? Remember Jericho? Marching around the walls, prostitute, who helped the Israelites? That was Boaz's mom. She was a lady who stood up and, and, and stood, stood above everybody else when, when nobody else would help them. And she had a son named Boaz who grew up to be a man who honored God and who provided for and protected those who were less fortunate. So God uses this undeserved act of kindness to redeem the story as well. And finally, finally, the other way God redeems the story, brings something good out of something bad, is he redeems the story with, of loss with an unpredictable ending. 
Yeah, I mean, he's going through the processes of naming, uh, of doing what, Boaz, of doing what's right. And Ruth and Boaz, they actually go through this whole process of consummating the marriage, and then they have a son, and the son's name is Obed. Kind of an interesting name. But Obed has a son, his name is Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David, who becomes king. And the kind of genealogy ends right there, but if you want to know the rest of the genealogy, I'll turn over to Matthew chapter 1, and it starts with David. And where does it end up with? Jesus. Jesus. See, God was working through this to bring about some incredible stuff, not just for then, but for the future. God sees the big picture. He knows what's going to happen. He doesn't always, and I, don't ask me how can God, you know, not make us make things happen, not be robots, and still at the same time know what's going to happen. I don't know. I don't know how that works. If you know how that works, go ahead and define it, and you will, you know, be the smartest person in the whole earth. You'll be God. But the issue is, is he does that. And so what happens is it ends up that this, this story of loss, Naomi losing her, her husband and losing her two sons and having all this loss happen in her life and Ruth finding the loss of her husband and going to this foreign land, which for her is just totally horrible for her at first, but they find this kindness, they find this close relationship. What happens is it ends up leading eventually to the birth of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. God uses all of that to bring about some good stuff. Now, I want to end by just kind of going back to the story I started with, which wasn't in the Bible. That video I saw online about the kid, you know, anticipation. <laughs> it was funny. It was the funniest video. Um, I can't find it anymore. I don't know where it went to. You know, it's just out there in the Ethernet or where, somewhere. I don't know where it's at. But anyway, I remember it, though, because the thing was, this kid, you know, after he, um, after, he, after he looks at that and he runs into the other room and he's all upset because this box says, you know, fun with pottery, um, you kind of figure out what he really wanted was an Xbox. You know, he thought he was going to, and it was in too big of a box and stuff. And so the mom runs after him and she grabs him and she says, son, son, come back here and open the box. It's not what you think. She says, I'm not trying to fool you. I just could not find the box to put everything in except for this box. It's not what's... <laughs> he opens the box, and in the box is an Xbox, a couple of extra controllers, a bunch of games. And the kid just freaks out, man, you know. Funny video. And just think, if he had never opened the box... He just had to open the box to see what was there. So let me tell you, let me just say this. Before you stomp out of the room and slam the door because you don't look like what you see in your box or what's on the outside of the box, maybe your box may have a label on it and it says widowed or divorced or cancer or terminated or infertile or abused. Don't let that be your story. It doesn't have to be. Because God wants to bring about redemption. He wants to change, take what was bad and turn it into something good. So give God a chance to work.
You know, one of the things I love about the book of Ruth is that it's different than so many other stories we've studied so far. I mean, God spoke audibly to Abraham. He gave Moses a burning bush. Joseph had dreams. Noah had the ark. Jonah had the big fish. Samson had with super strength. But if you read the book of Ruth, there's nothing, not anything really miraculous that happens there. There doesn't seem to be any dramatic answers to prayer, no splitting of the Red Sea, no closing the mouths of lions, none of those things. It's just a family that need a lot of help. But by the time you get to the end of the story, even though there aren't any obvious or overt acts of God, you can see clearly how God and God's power is at work in the lives of these people. If you give God a chance to work, your story doesn't have to be about loss or disappointment. It can be about a story of redemption. Let's pray. God, this morning, we would ask that you would just help us to understand that you don't have to do anything miraculous in our life to redeem our stories. What you can do, God, is help us with our losses. It may be something as simple as bringing into our life somebody who can be a good friend, who will hang with us in a tough time, who's been there, and they can look at us, and, and as we grab their arm and say, is this normal, will everything be all right, we can assure them that it can be again. It may be somebody who gives us an undeserved kindness because God, so often in life when we go through loss, we become people that pull away and become bitter. Instead of